Our text this morning is from John 10. It's about the Good Shepherd. You know, it's a text that sort of speaks for itself. In one sense, I don't really need to expound on it for you. And it's not just because David Peter already preached on this last week. No, even apart from that, it's such a vivid and familiar image that one hardly needs to explain it. Christ, the Good Shepherd, it seems relevant in every age. From the ancient Christian catacombs where it was painted as this youthful Apollo-like shepherd on the walls and on the tomb inscriptions, all the way to the modern Sunday school pictures that I grew up with, with the gentle Jesus cradling the lamb in his arms. The Good Shepherd continues to be the most common and beloved images of the Savior. And this is true regardless of our knowledge and experience with sheep and with pastures and the pastoral life, which is good for me because I, like Dr. Peter, uh, have very little contact with sheep apart from my sweaters. There are plenty of resources out there that can give us insight into shepherds and sheep, the first century concept or context of, of what it meant to be a shepherd. And much of it is pretty helpful, but you know, even without it, I kind of get it. And I fall in love with it. Perhaps this is because Jesus takes this image of the shepherd and he transforms it into something really new and remarkable. After all, the good shepherd's definitive characteristic is that he lays down his life for the sheep. And now we have clearly entered into something unique and profound. No longer do we really dwell on pastoral images. And when Christ says that the sheep hear his voice and the shepherd speaks and they know him by his voice, I suppose one could find analogies in the world of shepherds and sheep, but our affections are really drawn into something far more human, far more intimate. The kind of intimacy that's found in the likes of, say, mother and child. When I hear it, I think now of my one-year-old Toby sitting happily on my knee playing with my bow tie or something, and then suddenly he hears his mother's voice, and naturally all is lost. He's nothing but squirm and scramble in order to follow the voice that continues to shower him with incomparable love. Still, those who first heard him, who first heard his voice in first century Palestine, where there were a lot of shepherds and a lot of sheep, our text says that they did not understand him. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And after that, he goes through it again, even more clearly as we heard in the excerpt this morning, and they simply conclude that he is stark, raving mad or has a demon. Now, who could confuse or be offended at the Good Shepherd? Now, of course, the context of Israel's own history and 
scriptures, the shepherd has really some other kind of meaning beyond, beyond just being a shepherd. Throughout the Old Testament, the shepherd image is repeatedly applied to Israel's rulers and kings. Moses, of course, was called out from being a shepherd to lead God's people. And Israel's greatest king, David, began as a shepherd and was called and anointed. As Psalm 78 says, he was chose David as servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought him to be shepherd of Jacob and his people. And when the kings and rulers of Israel preyed on the people like wolves instead of acting like caring shepherds, then the Lord declared that I myself will rule them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And so the image of the shepherd is filled with the messianic expectation of the Lord's day of salvation and judgment, the day of the messianic king. And when Jesus declares to be the good shepherd, well, there's just simply more than Beethoven's Sixth Symphony going on in their heads. There's the great hope of divine deliverance, the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment and salvation. But now when Jesus appeals to this image, he transforms that as well. The attempts to make Jesus king earlier by force are refused. Later, before Pilate, Jesus speaks of a kingdom, but not of this world. And he is a king that is crowned. Well, you know how he's crowned. This messianic shepherd king lays down his life for the sheep. And the crook that gathers them so that there'll be one flock and one shepherd is decidedly cruciform. When I am lifted up, he says, I will draw all men to myself. And so he presents them with a dead shepherd, a crucified king. There's not much hope in that. But I wonder if even more troubling was that voice. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. Already before Jesus' words cause offense, he claims that they're not his own, but they're from the Father, and that they are filled with spirit and with life. At one point, many of his disciples say to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? A few listen. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But now that voice, that voice of the shepherd who called the sheep by name, that voice of the shepherd who lays down his life, they continue to hear it and know it and follow it. Now that is one persistent voice, a voice that moves beyond death. No wonder they thought he was mad. You know, it's a voice that offends today as well. The voice of the Good Shepherd is really an invasive voice. It's a voice that dares to call us by name, even if it is more convenient to live in anonymity. 
It's a voice that dares to call us together to live as one flock, even if such fellowship impinges on our individual rights and freedom. It's a voice that dares to forgive our sins, even if we're not particularly eager to confess them. You know, it's a voice that even dares to enter, and (laughs) this is so central to everything we do here. This voice dares to enter at times like these into our mouths, even in this man of unclean lips, so that speaking as a pastor, the voice of the Good Shepherd might be heard. After all, he said, feed my lambs and take care of my sheep. I think it's becoming clear why we contemplate this text after Easter and why those who first heard Jesus could not understand his words. They are nonsensical, offensive, and filled with promises that cannot be kept unless they're spoken by one who has been resurrected from the dead, the shepherd king who lays down his life so that he might take it up again. I once had a professor who I won't name, uh, but his name begins with David and ends with Schmidt, uh, who spoke once about the incredible transformation that happens in Psalm 23 after the psalmist passes through the valley of the shadow of death. Before, it is an idyllic, almost sentimental picture of the sheep and the shepherd. But then it gets serious. And on the far side of death's deep darkness, our vision is transformed into something even more profound. No longer sheep, In the pasture, we sit as royal sons, as royal sons and daughters at the table of the king, dwelling in his house forever. See, it's not really knowing a whole lot about sheep that makes us fall in love with this picture and promise of the Good Shepherd. It's Easter, and it's Easter's proclamation that fills our ears with his voice, his word, and his promise. My sheep hear my voice, he says, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen.